City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Performance We are delighted to welcome you to the 30th year of the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars. We are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. These seminars give you an opportunity to hear a candid description of what it is like to work in the theatre of today. The subject of the seminar you are about to see is performance. Our guests, all notable actors, will describe the experiences that brought them to the front of the footlights. I am Sandra Gilman, first vice chair of the American Theatre Wing. It gives me great pleasure to introduce the moderator of this panel, Howard Sherman, executive director of the American Theatre Wing. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you all. I could easily spend the first 20 minutes of this seminar just giving you the extraordinary range of credits of the performers that we have on the panel today. So I'm going to keep it very brief, and throughout you'll hear more about the many things that they've done. Let me introduce, beginning on my right, Martha Plimpton, most recently on Broadway in 16 Wounded, Jefferson Mays, appearing on Broadway in I Am My Own Wife, Felicia Rashad, in the recent, from the recently opened revival of A Raisin in the Sun, Anne H., now in the revival and revised version of 20th Century at the Roundabout Theatre Company, and Richard Thomas appearing in the Stendhal Syndrome off-Broadway at primary stages. Thank you all for being here. When we put together these panels, which we only get to do a couple of times a year, to say, how do we pick five performers out of the hundreds? We just stop and say, who's interesting? Who might be neat to have together? And then, as I began to think about how do we begin this, we have to look for, for commonality. And I started thinking that so many of these performers are people that we know because they've been on our TV screens or in our living rooms at various times in their lives. And so I wondered about the issue of expectations. As performers, do you find that when you're working, people come to the work you do? Do you know if people come to the work you do with particular expectations of what they're going to see from you? And then do you have to take them somewhere from where they start from to where they get to in the performance that you're giving? Um, let me start with Richard, who is <laughs> Certainly playing against type, many would say, in the Stendhal syndrome uh, as, as a... I'll take that as a compliment. As a, as a, as a <laughs> crazed bisexual uh, conduct, the orchestra conductor. 
Um, and and, and you're I've not that? No, <laughs> no, and I haven't even played it on TV, so wow, it's all. Wow. No. But I'm thinking about taking it up. I, um, I think because of the years that I spent, uh, I mean, f f there are obvious things in, in my history that, that uh, lend themselves to the question, because after I had, I mean, I started, I grew up in New York working in the theater from the time I was a child. I was a child actor here in New York. But then I went away and I did a very popular television series for years, you know, The Waltons. And so when I first came back to New York, uh, after that had been successful, um, and I had spent, I'd grown up working in the theater in New York, it was very clear to me that when I got back on stage here, everybody was waiting to see it, but people hadn't, you know, they were like, well, can he really act on stage? Or can, you know, all the questions people ask when someone who, who hasn't been in the last few seasons gets up or is famous for, for something else. Uh, but I didn't worry too much about it. I loved the part, and, I, and uh, it turned out to be okay. But I could feel in the house, you know, the expectations of what they were, what they were coming to, to. They were coming to see me because they knew me from something else, and I think some of them were wondering if I was going to be any good on stage, and some of them didn't worry about it. But if you have a good show to do, and you have a part you love, then you just try to give them the experience of the play, and the rest of it is up to them. You can't drag them with you. you know. Martha, we, we've been watching you since your adolescence. Uh, and, and then to see you taking on roles like, for example, Hedda Gabler, which, which is a long ways away from, from some of your early films. Yeah. Um, I have to tell you, um, just in terms of what I expect from an audience, um, I generally, hopefully, is there, you know, <coughs> attention and their indulgence and their, you know, um, uh, generous ear um, But having been in a fairly popular movie from the 80s, which has gained a sort of cult status in the, uh, in the in intervening years, it's something of a risk I found going up on stage, because people will yell things at you. <laughs> yep. And in uh, Hedda Gabler, in specific, we were doing at Longmore, if I remember, we, uh, we were doing an afternoon performance for some college students. Uh, not Yale students, I should hasten to add, but uh, <laughs> college students from around the state. And um, at the beginning of the second act, uh, the characters of Hedda and Taya are uh, sleeping. It's the morning of... Uh, the next, the following day, and uh, Taya is sort of restlessly pacing and wondering where Loveborg is, and Hedda is very calmly sleeping on the couch, not concerned really about anything. And the lights came up, this sort of gentle, sort of, you know, sounds of morning coming in through the window, and, you know, sweet and simple dawn, and I'm laying there, you know, deep asleep, and I hear, <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, there you go. And you expect that they, yeah. And you don't want them to do that in the future? It, is that the idea? It, you know what? It's fine. I just like a little warning. You know, because the rest of the, for the rest of the show, I really was thinking, dear Lord, how am I going to do this? I'm a goonie again. Yeah. I'm a goonie to this person. You can't, after I, I, I about two weeks into 5th of July, one afternoon after I, you know, Jeff Daniels came out and we had this big kiss and 
from the back of the house, John Boy's a <laughs> I said, nevertheless, <laughs> we're going to do this play. Of course, they had said the same thing about Superman before you, Rich. <laughs> so. But I should also add that, that it, there's a wonderful thing about it in that it brings people who might not have otherwise come to the theater to the theater, which yeah. is really uh, the, the biggest plus about it. So I'm, I'm actually quite grateful for it. Yeah. Well, and, and so that leads me to ask Felicia, because certainly there are some audiences coming to Raisin the Sun who are being drawn in from so many different worlds, because you are, are perhaps best known for, for your television work, though you've got this extensive, extensive stage work. You've got Audrey McDonald, who's, who's a three-time Tony winner, and then you have Sean Combs. Do you find the audience is taking time to adjust to everyone together or whether the audiences are really prepared for what they're getting into hmm. with Raisin? Hmm. There's a phenomenon going on there at the Royale Theatre. When performers make their entrances, Audra first, there's always applause. And so when you're standing backstage, you know, ah, those are the theatre goers. They know her well. <laughs> When Sean makes his entrance, there's this wild scream that just goes all over creation. And you know, oh, those are the young people. And they're not shy. <laughs> and then Sanaa makes her entrance as Benita. And you hear this other round of applause, and you say, film goers. Film goers. And then I come in. And then you hear this other thing, and you say, oh, television watchers. <laughs> <laughs> but then it all changes. It all changes, and the audience, which is the most diverse audience I've ever seen, becomes one community. The audience becomes one ear. The audience becomes one set of eyes. The, it's, it's, it's like the audience becomes one person. And it's amazing. And they come totally with the story. And I think that has a lot to do with the force of this writing. And that it's such a human story and a humanizing story. That, <laughs> let's say, the least likely are just at the end. Sean once said, <laughs> Sean said, no, I'm I've got some really, I've got some friends who are tough dudes, and they were sending the audience saying, man, I had to check myself. And I was starting to cry, I had to check myself. <laughs> and that's a beauty and the power of theater, wouldn't you say? Mm, that's great. Yeah. So great. Theater, theater is, is life. Theater does this. And for you, so many of your film roles have been contemporary roles, and certainly your first Broadway appearance in Proof was a contemporary role. Now you're appearing in something which is a very stylized 30 com 30s comedy. Um, again, is that an adjustment for your audience? Is that, what kind of adjustment is that for you? Um, I, I, well, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, I think I, I approach roles in the same way, whether it's a, a modern role or this. I kind of 
like to fall into the world of it. And the th being in the 30s, screwball comedy is certainly a new world for me. And um, I'm with a group of incredible players, including Alec Baldwin, of course. And um, I, I find that because, and this is where you know, publicity kind of has come into play. Um, everybody kind of set up that this was some crazy screwball comedy with Alec Baldwin and Ann H. And what it did was kind of allow people to come into the theater with, oh, they're outrageous and the show is outrageous. So people are very open to the experience. And where I find my expectation is within myself to, after having done a, a, such a dramatic role in Proof, that I wanted, my expectation was I'm going to give them something completely different and something they've never seen from me. And fortunately, I had, you know, a lot of, um, honestly, press out there saying 20th century is this. And so people came open-minded and I said, well, let's give them a show. Um, and it's been a wonderful, it's been, it's been really fun. And Jefferson, you haven't got the same familiarity of being in people's homes, but you have a different challenge in I Am My Own Wife because you aren't inhabiting a single character, but all of them. And of course, I think many people do come to the show saying, what is this? How is this going to be? How does how has that worked for you? And how do you draw, draw them into to the countless characters that you play? Well, it's, it's been lovely because people come to see I'm My Own Wife with no expectation, expectations whatsoever <laughs> about, about me or the play because uh, nobody knows who I am and uh, nobody knows anything about this uh, singular character. Um, I remember in a, in a matinee recently entering uh, <clears throat> at the top of the show and uh, hearing a, a man in the matinee audience cry out in injured tones, It's a man! Um, so, so there's it's a sort of... Uh, nobody really knows what to expect. Uh, most one-person shows, are like I'm thinking of True or um, Full Gallop, um, are, are based on um, uh, famous people. Uh, you know, Belle of Amherst, people have preconceptions, but nobody knows who Charlotte von Malsdorf is. And... Um, and uh, what Doug has done is an extraordinary thing, I think. He introduces uh, the audience to this person, and they feel as though they get to know her, and then ultimately, I hope, leave the theater with more questions about her identity uh, than they had to begin with. And you had the opportunity to really develop this piece from very early on. So it was modeled, to I mean, certainly modeled on the real performers, and you were you were in fact working with the playwright who is himself a character in the play. How, how did that development come about and how did, how did you shape the play as, as an integral part of it? Yeah, it was a, a rare luxury um, to be, well I was called up by Doug who said, um, would you like to be in a play that hasn't been written yet? <laughs> and, uh, and I said, oh, yeah, what it's about? And he said, well, it's about a 65-year-old East German transvestite. And I said, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I've been dying to play. <laughs> it's time. Um, but, uh, Is it fair to mention briefly that just before that you'd played Peter Pan? Yes. <laughs> I needed something to shake me up a little bit out of it. Um, but, uh, so, so I was involved um, from the get-go. It was just it would, uh, the, the, the head of Sundance Theatre Lab, uh, Robert Blacker, 
um, called Doug up and, and knew Doug had experienced about 10 years of writer's block uh, with this uh, play. He j just felt he didn't have the authority to write about the history of 20th century Germany through these mar this marginalized perspective. Um, and uh, Robert said to Doug, of course you don't. Uh, you're a privileged, you know, gay white male from Texas and you can't write about Germany. But what you can write about is uh, your relationship with Charlotte von Malsdorff. And uh, so he said, just bring in a, a director that you love, and he chose Moses S. Kaufman, who is adept, as you know, uh, dealing with uh, found material, documentary sort of theater, Gross Indecency, Laramie Project, and a cast, and come out to the mountains of Utah and just sit around a table and try to make something over the course of three weeks. And he said, well, I don't know. I, I don't know how many people I need. And he said, well, just bring uh, one actor. Uh, to uh, just read it aloud and just uh, in, fr in front of you and then see what you can make. So we just sat with um, hours and hours of transcripted interviews <coughs> in this huge stack in the middle of the table and sifted through it, found things that struck us and interested us, started to juxtapose them, and then little by little the play emerged from that. So that raises a question for all of you as performers. The opportunity to create a role for the first time in a new piece of work versus taking on a piece which has been done previously and in some cases may have been done for hundreds of years previously. Mm. Is there a difference in attacking those roles uh, or, or is it fundamentally the same process? Martha? Shall I? You shall. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, for me anyway, I mean obviously I wouldn't speak for anyone else, for me it's not too terribly different to process. Um, I think that uh, you know, wh the, the, the main difference being you know, whether or not you have the luxury of having a living playwright there with you uh, to help you, um, or not, whatever the case may be. <laughs> and we're coming back to that. <laughs> yes. But, um, but I think, um, you know, in terms of, uh, <clears throat> for example, just doing head of, use that example one more time, it's, um, you know, we could have, I suppose, been quite nervous about putting on Hedda, particularly since I was um, the youngest person to play the role since its original uh, production um, in Ibsen's time. She's written as 29, but often played by women uh, quite a bit more mature uh, and accomplished, generally. Um, and that could have been quite nerve-wracking. Um, but we approached it like, um, sort of in the, in the way Doug Hughes used to say, our director, you know, I sort of feel this, this play suffers from title character syndrome, you know. Um, it, it's called Hedda Gabler, but she's Hedda Tessman in the text. And in that sense, we don't really know who this woman is, and there's no reason for us to be nervous about how she's been played in the past, or, you know, whatever film there is on it, or whatever, you know, I mean, uh, research we could have done. We didn't really need to adhere to any of those rules, which was nice. And in that sense, we, we, uh, we were free, really, to do what we pleased. And I think, as a result, we did some, you know, very sort of interesting, at least for us, work that was pretty exciting. Um, but for a new play, and I have to admit, I've only done one or two, I've only originated one or two roles, which is, um, I suppose, maybe a little unusual. Um, the fun is really having the playwright there to help and to see the actor that he's got in front of him or mm. her. 
um, and sort of find a way to give his character life through them. And that's always a very exhilarating bonding process. Mm -hmm. Richard, you've done so many classical plays over the years, and, and Stendhal was an opportunity to, to create a role. Um, it's nice to work with dead playwrights. <laughs> <laughs> we'll tell Terrence you said that. No, with, with, with a lot of exceptions, of course. Uh, I actually did that was because someone was, I don't know if it was Mark Lamus or someone was doing a something with the concept we had for Hamlin. Somebody said, you're going to do that? And he says, he's dead. He won't mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it is fundamentally the same process, I think. I mean, it's, it's, you, you have the text and you have the character and you spend your time getting to know the character and bringing it to you and you to it. Um, it's exciting to be in the room with the playwright. A little scary for me uh, because I, it's very easy for me to put someone else at the center of my process. So if there's a playwright there who's writing the play, I sort of take their expectations and put them in the middle of me, which sometimes makes it hard for me to, to, um, to really feel where, where I'm at. It takes time to make it my own. But I think it's a great privilege to work with a playwright and uh, to, create a, to create a role. Stendhal Syndrome has actually been kicking around for a while in, in workshop. It's never had a full production, it's full production, but it was in pretty tight shape by the time I start, we started rehearsal. Um, so he didn't make a lot of changes in that. The first act he's, he's worked on because it's, it's brand new. But uh, when he sent it to me and I thought, well, no one's, no one's seen this produced in the theater before and certainly no one's seen me in this. Uh, it, was th it was thrilling, actually, to know that, that there were no expectations about the role. But once it shows up and running everybody's, and people are talking about it, they bring those expectations in. You know, we're all expecting something. You know, I expect abject adoration by the end of the beginning, you know, and, and uh, when the process starts. And then by opening night, it's I wake up as if to be hanged. You know, I just hope that, there, that there's going to be a phone call from the government, governor and I'll be, you know, I'll make it alive. But uh, the, the classics are great because you feel, and, you know, Jefferson, you know, has a lot of experience that you, you've, you, you're, you've, you've, taking a great dive into this river, um, the, the, the time river of the theater, where all these wonderful plays thro f flow through it, all these fabulous actors have been in them and done them, and it can be daunting, but at the same time, it's, it's, a f it's fantastic to jump into that, into that uh, flow and to feel, you know, the, the, the ghosts and the choices, and in many plays, choices you've read about, and th things that actors have done that you know they did 200 years ago mm. that, that, are, mm -hmm. that are talked about. So it's a great feeling of participation and continuity. That's very satisfying in, in the classics. Uh, you, you can't make it yours. You can just bring what you, you can bring to it. Of course, in theater, it becomes an oral history. For the most part, we can read about what a performance was like, but we can't see it. I'm curious to ask Anne and Felicia, in the case of Raising the Sun, um, Clearly, that's a, an iconic piece, and there is a, a film that people can go back and see. And not from, from theater, but you actually did a very unusual thing, which was the remake of Psycho with the original script and shot by shot. Do you go back? Do you see the originals? Do you, do you, or do you keep them away from you when oh, you're Oh, goodness, you're I don't want to see the originals. <laughs> I'm the original. <laughs> well, you have to think like that, don't you? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, it, you, you have to think like that because I learned that as an understudy for years and years and years. I was an understudy. 
And um, one of the first lessons I learned as an understudy was that my real job was to go on stage and not bump into anybody, mm. yeah. allow people to, the people who did it regularly, the actors who performed their roles regularly, to have the freedom to do what it was that they did without creating confusion, but to bring something that was totally new and original for them to respond to. And so every actor is the original, mm -hmm. or should be. I totally agree with that. I mean, I had a, a kind of interesting experience because I can't, Psycho is a little bit different, but uh, Proof, I, you know, had done, I asked to do Proof after two incredible actresses. Mary Stewart had won a Tony for it. Um, Jennifer Jason Lee obviously is a, an amazing actress, and they wanted to close the show, so they asked if I wanted to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, by all means. I, I had not seen either one of them, and, and I was glad that I hadn't, only because to approach it, I you know, needed to go in with m my own character. Um, but it was very interesting, because I, we got a new cast, but I realized in the rehearsal process, oh, I was sitting in this chair, because she sat in this chair. The whole play had already been done. Yeah. All the lighting was done, so even though it felt like a new show, which, you know, D uh, Dan Sullivan, thank God, made it feel that way for us as actors, really we were just fitting into what had already been, you know, uh, orchestrated. And, it, and that was really awesome, because it was new, and yet we were on the same set, and it, it was really incredible. And then 20th Century, of course, had been done, uh, it's been done in every incarnation about seven times by a million different people, um, Carol Lombard being the most famous in the movie. And I just, you know, no thanks, didn't want to see it, didn't want to play Carol Lombard, I wanted to play Lily Garland. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, you know, it just is that, you have to come in with, with yourself. And also I, I feel like, and did feel like, I didn't want to... Um, come in with a, a, an entire cast of people who were going to bring themselves to the plate and, and be able to be in a rehearsal process with an idea of something I already knew. I wanted our director to be able to give his point of view on 20th Century. Ken Ludwig, Ken Ludwig of course, did an incredible adaptation of our show. And, um, and I wanted them to be able to have a fresh actress and point of view. And that, that seems to be, and I, you know, I've only done two plays, so I don't know what the future is going to bring. But <laughs> I might start looking at the other things in the future. I certainly <coughs> would like to see your head out. Oh, wow. Yeah. That it's, it's would extraordinary. be wow. yeah, you saw, I, I saw would saw like that. that opportunity. And that is so why, I mean, it is, I wish I could go back and see Jennifer Jason Lee do proof. You know, it's just, it, that's one of the things that I wish I could do, but that's the beauty of I think of that's one of the fun too. things about, about all of this is that you've, uh, you'll find yourself uh, talking to an actor who's played the same role you've played in yeah. a different production somewhere else, and you talk about this because it's it, it, nothing is is ever it's all impermanent and it's all done over and over again, and we all slip into each other's shoes all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm a I'm yeah. a terrible one preparing a classical role. I'm a terrible one for reading everything and listening. Mm -hmm. I listen to every recording. Yes. I start oh, really? with <laughs> I I'm uh, not because I want to not because I want to give that performance because I know I can't. I mean I'm not I can't give Gilbert's performance in Richard II and I can't give, but but I just take as much on. Board as I can, mainly for, for in terms of Shakespeare, just for clarity and, and listening to things that make things clear to me. But uh, I, I, I like I like to hear I like to take it all on board. Um, 
I can never, I get frustrated because I can't, then I find myself not being able to do any of those great things. Not that I'm trying to do them, but those shadows and those ghosts, but they're there anyway. Mm -hmm. They're yeah. looking, they're in sure. the wings, they're watching, they're mm -hmm. all around. I think it's kind of, I think it's one of the fun things. With 5th of July, I watched, I went to the theater all the time and watched, because I had to go in in a very brief time. So I, I really felt like an understudy coming in, actually, mm -hmm. in, that, in that performance. And I didn't want, and it was a, such a, an exquisite ensemble. I didn't want to... I, I wanted to just fit in, mm. but then as we played, mm. it's, over the months it started to evolve and change, and people started to step back and make room for what I was doing, and, and, and so everything shifted. But I, I went in pretty much as if I were as if I were coming in as an understudy. You know. I'll tell you something else that's really cool about originating a role is getting your name in the first published book. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. 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 I've been wondering this. I think when they publish this, I might see the workshops. These are the things actors right. really care about. <laughs> <Yeah. right. laughs> that's sad. That's the only permanent thing we that's have. That's right. It is semi-permanent. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Do you know what I think will be so interesting? Somebody came to the stage door the other day, and she said, "I saw you in Proof, and I'm in high school, and I played the." Role in proof, and I didn't want to see you before I did it in high school. <laughs> and I, was, I said so, and then she came to the show, and she and I said so. Were we similar? She said absolutely not. I was nothing like you. I enjoyed watching it, but no. I was like, wow, I should have met you then. You know, you could have given me some pointers. But um, David Auburn, of course, uh, won the Pulitzer Prize. And what I think is so interesting is that that show then went across to every high school. Mm. And, and I'm curious because, of course, your show. That's right. I can't wait. The high schools of America. I mean, I just think that's going to be so interesting because yes. so many people are going to be taking on and so many students are going to be trying to figure out the complicated performances that you give, and I, it will be so interesting. That is interesting. Life, I can't I wait to the like sixteen-year-old captain of the I of the football team is yeah. playing Joel Van Malsdorf. Right, right. <laughs> well, you know, when Lily Tomlin's show, The Search for Intelligent, oh, the Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe, went show. out and was done regionally and probably in stock productions, they actually had multiple people play the roles. Oh. Mm. So uh, they actually mm -hmm. broke it up. Oh, that's interesting. It would be mm -hmm. curious to think yes. about. Yes, it would know, certainly would be fairer to the drama club. I think. Well, as we know, the drama. Drama club is, you know, you sell the tickets based on how many parents of how right. many kids are in the show. So right, right, right. Your, your show is not easy box office across America at our high schools. Oh. But since we're talking about schools, I, I want to ask about that. Um, some of you started very, very young in the field. Richard, you got your equity card at seven. Um, how did you all? get into acting? What, what was the, the break that, that, that got you started in all of this? Um, Felicia, I You mean know. professionally? Uh, I think that was the, well, both, both how did you start just even getting on stage the first time and then, and then the, the first professional break? Well, beauty was always an issue for me as a child because my parents were absolutely stunning. My sister was cute as pie. <laughs> All of the girls ran after my brother. And every time I looked in the mirror, I thought, well, when I was born, God was on a lunch break. <laughs> oh, my God. This is how young people can think, you know. It's really something when you're always comparing yourself to people around you. You will always, if you're always comparing yourself to other people, 
you can trick yourself easily into mm -hmm. believing you're greater than or mm -hmm. less than mm -hmm. instead of just being who you are. Mm -hmm. When I was 11 years old, because of my speech patterns that my mother had insisted upon, grew up in Houston, Texas, but we spoke as if we were from someplace else. Presumably not Brooklyn. No, not Brooklyn. I was selected to be the mistress of ceremonies for um, an interscholastic musical presentation that were all of the schools. And I had learned my script so well that on the night of the performance, I stood in the spotlight for the first time. The light was blinding. I had my script in my hand, but because I had studied it and prepared so well, I didn't have to read it. I stood and I talked to the light. And I just talked to the light all night long. And when the evening was finished and people were leaving the Coliseum, I heard several mothers say, there's the little girl who spoke so beautifully. Mm. Isn't she beautiful? And I thought, that's it. When I grow up, I'll be an actress. <laughs> <laughs> and they're beautiful all the time. Wow. But what I didn't understand and wouldn't be able to articulate for many years was that the beauty that I ex had experienced had nothing to do with what I was wearing or the curls in my hair mm. or the ruffles on my socks. It was the beauty of communication from the heart. And that's what acting is. Is it not? Well, oh. I, I mean, we, we only hope. <laughs> we only hope it's as beautiful as what you just said. Yes, that communication and experience. Yeah. So let's stay with, with first experiences. So Richard, you went right into professional work. You, you yeah, skipped I, the high school shows. I did. I, I, um, my, my folks were, were professional dancers in the ballet and we I was sort of raised in the backstage and uh, s started professionally actually in, in, in a production of, of, of a play called Sunrise at Campobello about the Roosevelt family in 1958 and uh, and it was a, it was it was terrific I'd, I'd, I'd been in the wings my whole chi small childhood and then trotted out and, and did that. But the, the thing about that experience that was so exciting to me was I wasn't in the last act, so I was always brought home before the, before the curtain call. But towards the end of the run, they, they said, why don't you let him stay for the curtain call? So my, the, the, one of the most vivid experiences for me, aside from making my first entrance with James Earl Jones, who was, it was his Broadway debut as well, and, we were, and he was the, the, just the dearest, kindest man to me to make me feel comfortable and at ease. Um, was when they let me take a bow the very first time, and you know, at, uh, with the whole company, and you know, at the curtain call, which didn't seem like such a big idea, but at seven, it was just extraordinary. <laughs> but my favorite early sort of starting thing was when I auditioned for, and I, I'll tell it just because as a child, it was the greatest audition anybody could ever have. I was ten, and I auditioned for for Strange Interlude, the first Broadway production of the of the Actors Studio, and I went to Jose Quintero. Uh, to his office at the studio. And he sat down and he said, So, what do you want to be more than anything in the world? I said, an actor. He said, That's it. You got the part. <laughs> <laughs> All actors should have that audition. <laughs> and, 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 and that was the moment in which I thought, Oh, okay. Yes, if I say this is what I am, then this is what I can be. Wow. And so that was, yeah, that was a kind of beginning for me. Huh. Jefferson? Um, I, I, didn't, I came to it very late in college, actually. It was my first play. Um, 
but I think that I also came to it very early. Um, I grew up in a, in a, a house with no television in it. Um, it fell off the table sometime <laughs> during the <laughs> Vietnam War. Um, the family basset hound ran underneath and got caught in the uh, cord, and it smashed. And, and that was a, a, a strange sort of blessing. Mm -hmm. um, because my, my parents then, at the, at the end of every meal, um, would, uh, we would read a family novel. We would read uh, David Copperfield or Great Expectations, generally Dickens, some mm -hmm. Thurber. But anyway, all, all of five of us would pass the uh, novel around the table and each read a few pages or a chapter. And uh, I think that was the first time that I encountered theater. It was just the spoken word and these wonderful narratives. And uh, hearing my, my father's voice, and he was sort of a removed narrator. I mean, and my mother would inhabit every character very fully. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching her face just transform as she was reading. And, uh, and I was very frustrated because, you know, those Dickensian sentences, they go on for pages <laughs> um, and coming to commas, and I would, I would just be furious. And in my sort of pre-literate days, um, I couldn't, well, I couldn't read, of course, in my pre-literate days. <laughs> 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 um, so I would, I would hear, uh, you know, a Mr. Monroe story from James Thurber, and then I would get up and sort of act out a little Mr. Monroe vignette of some kind. Um, and uh, so that was, that was my, I think that was my introduction to, to theater. It was just sort of around the campfire of the, of the dining room table. Martha? Well, uh, it wasn't dissimilar from Richard's story, really. I was, um, my parents were both, well, my mother was in the original company of Hare at the Public Theater in 1967. And she then uh, moved to Broadway with it in 1968. And uh, my father uh, came in t uh, to replace uh, James Rado as Claude. And uh, that was in 1970. And I was conceived uh, in the spring of that year. I'm not sure if it was in the Biltmore Theater. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there was a lot going on. <laughs> uh, and so, by the end of 1970, when I um, emerged, uh, you know, wet and screaming from my mother's womb, uh, I was in the theater uh, every single day. Uh, until I was about three years old. And uh, my babysitters were the tribe. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, these wonderful, wonderful actors and people who, and also strange people who just, you know, who Ragney and Rado and Galt McDermott had just literally pulled out of Washington Square Park to be in the show. Uh, these people cared for me and raised me. <laughs> um, and, um, and so I didn't know any other life. Uh, I don't know any other life, which at times has, has uh, frustrated me because I've often thought, well, you know, maybe I would be a better actor had I come to it as a young woman rather than as an, an infant. Uh, had I made a conscious choice, do you know, um, maybe I would, I would um, approach it differently, be more intellectual about it, have a, <laughs> you know, uh, a more rigorous, I don't know, technique or system. <laughs> If I'd gone to college or, 
what have you. Um, but I didn't. I just grew up in it and um, spent most of my life going to plays and uh, seeing pretty much everything. My mother had no restrictions on what I was permitted to see from a very early age. I remember seeing a production of Titus Andronicus that just blew my five-year-old wow. brain. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> a streetcar named Desire. I remember seeing Three Penny Opera in the park. Uh, these were these are my earliest memories, and I know it, I realize it sounds rather pretentious, um, uh, because it just does. But that's um, <laughs> but that's really how I came to it, and then uh, it just was a natural way to behave. And I made uh, uh, I remember my mother was dating a fellow. Tom O'Horgan was directing a play on Broadway called The Leaf People, which ran for about seven performances, I think. <laughs> it was all about people living in the jungles of the Amazon, and everyone was painted from head to toe green, and swinging on vines, and singing these crazy avant-garde songs, and it was on Broadway! And, um, and I remember my first image of myself on stage is exactly the same as yours. We were there so often that Tom said one night, ah, just paint her and put her out there. <laughs> <laughs> maybe three or four years old, and uh, I completely toe-headed this white hair, and, you know, maybe this big, and with a loin, they just wrapped a loincloth around me, painted me green in that sort of noxious grease paint, you know, that smell, uh, head to toe green, and just carried me out for the curtain call, and in the line of green people, and I just looked out at this enormous just this sea of faces. It was just, I'll never forget it as long as I live. And I'll also never forget that smell. <laughs> doesn't smell um, like that anymore. Yeah, it doesn't smell like that. It, <laughs> had a, it had a very specific kind of smell. Yes, it did. Like a clay almost. Were you in that play? <laughs> <laughs> no, Rich just used to paint up occasionally. <laughs> yeah, I just painted up. I painted up from the time I was a small one. Yeah. Uh, no, that just. It, all that uh, Stein's grease stick. Yeah, exactly, that grease stick stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, oh, but yeah. just for pleasure. <laughs> Purely for pleasure, yes. 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 It only became business later on. Yeah. So, Anne? Um, I, uh, I was raised in a family. It's funny, I kind of feel like my pretending happened very young. We were not only pretending we weren't from the place we were from, which was a rural Ohio. We were pretending we were not the people that we were. <laughs> Pretending we were the, we were richer than we were. We were pretending we were not, you know, living in the house that we were living in. It was not, it was not our car. Clothes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the whole thing was a big fat pretend. So I do feel that I, uh, I was learning from a very, very uh, young age to lie very well. <laughs> and. Um, and when we were all, we our door opened a little bit to say, we're broke, and we all need to get jobs. And I was 12, and I couldn't do much, but I could babysit. And I ended up babysitting for a family in Ocean City, New Jersey, who owned a dinner theater in Swainton, New Jersey, called the 76 House Dinner Theater. And they were going to put up a show of Music Man, and I used to sing in church with my father, and they were paying a hundred bucks a week, and boy, did I get up on that stage and try to belt out, you know, Gary, Indiana. And I think maybe three girls auditioned, but I was lucky enough to get the part. 
and ended up being in the 76 House Dinner Theater for two years, being in all of these, you know, ridiculous musicals as the youngest girl. And they all kind of took me under their wing. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, I was sitting around a bar with a whole bunch of New Jersey <laughs> actors wanting to be on Broadway. And they were drunk, and I was drunk. And like, okay, I think I can do this. No, I was only 12, so I wasn't drinking yet. But... Um, I, it was. It became my life. It became my um, actually home. Away. F it became my home. My home was a big mess, and this became a place where I could really be myself. And speaking to continuing to go back to, I didn't choose acting. That I did, could just work. Mm. And then in high school, I was in high school plays, and and then I was asked to be on a soap opera, and I was like, well, this will get me out of my house. So yes, I'll move to New York. Great. And then I was there for four years, and I, that was an incredible job. But after four years, I thought, I didn't decide to be an actress. They just hired me to be an actress. I'm going to go and be a designer. So I applied to school, and then somebody offered me a movie. And I was like, I didn't, okay. I didn't decide to do this. I still haven't decided. And I, I, cons I really feel like I decided to be an actress when I came to do Proof on Broadway. And I stepped out, and two girls had already done the show, and it was a huge success. And I stepped out on stage, and I saw the faces for the first time of people in the audience. And I was like, this is, this is amazing. And I restated my, my goal to acting and said, this is what I want to do. And this year, I, I mean, it just continues to be something that I restate. Doing, doing this show on Broadway, originating at least at this time, a show, uh, this, this character in 20th Century, it re I reclaimed being an actress again, and I don't know if that will. I don't. I don't know if that will continue. That that will stop. But I always thought the same thing. You know, I didn't go to school. I, I mean, this has all just been luck. It's all just been. I need a job. You know, and I've really just begun to own and claim the kind of space of I'm an actress. This is this is what I want to do, and I've just started to really pursue it. Actually, with that with that understanding and that love for the, for the theater that came when I walked, did prove. It's fascinating that each of you rooted that story in coming from family. Yeah. And touching on something that Richard had mentioned earlier, the issue of an ensemble, <coughs> and we all hear the cliché all of the time that theater is a big family, a cast is a family. What do you, what helps you to be part of an ensemble? What is the environment? What are the actions that meld a cast together? I can do my one-liner and say, of course, Jefferson is I Am My Own Ensemble as well in this particular production. <laughs> Thank you. wonderful cast. Thank you. <laughs> 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 Generous. <laughs> but, but I am wondering, because it is it is fascinating to see how casts do, or in some cases, don't come together. And I'm wondering what, what creates the best experience? What are the elements that, that make that work? Or what are the deterrents? I, I would love to just jump in here on this one, because um, it's something I've, I've been sort of obsessing over for the last year or so, um, having had a variety of experiences with wonderful you know, people. I think the director is almost the most important thing Mm -hmm. in bringing people together. I think that first day of rehearsal, you know, we all come from these sort of disparate backgrounds with these varying ideas of what the play should be and what we want to do with the play when we come into the room. And 
maybe we, you know, we know we have to keep our minds open, but we have a plan because we took this role because it was something in there that we needed to look at or explore. Um, and everyone comes into the room with their own version of that. And a, a truly great ensemble, I think, is formed when the director can sort of bring all of those people together on that first day or maybe the second. Doesn't matter. It should be in the first week, I think. Um, it should be early. Um, and sort of lays out their, uh, their vision of the world, of the story that we want to tell, the story we are here to tell. They sort of open an umbrella and sort of welcome everyone in the cast into it and sort of shelter them in that. That's not to say that it, that it oughtn't to be a fluid and elastic vision. Of course, it always should be. But it's so important to establish that early so that we all know we're in service of the same thing. Uh, so that we all know our mandate in a strange way. And then we can all trust each other. We needn't worry, you know, whose ego is deciding where they should be standing. We all, you know, or, or you know, whose um, nerves are making it hard for them to express something, you know. Because we have, we have the director's idea to come to. For me, anyway, that's what it, it just, it's an, an immediate way to sort of break down all of that stuff and have everyone really sort of come together right away and be on the same page. Of course, it's, you know, nothing is foolproof, but in my opinion, uh, without a great director, an ensemble tends to flounder. Here, here. Mm -hmm. I agree. Nothing mm -hmm. worse than being on board an unguided missile. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I like the idea that one of the, People ask about differences between working, you know, on, you know, on film and television and working in, in the theater. I, I like the idea that everybody comes together every day to all do it together and make it. Yeah. You know, there are people, I've, I've met people at the rap parties of movies that were in movies I was in that I never, or shows that I, that I never met, you right. know, that did sure. important people doing important part, you know, parts of a, of a picture that I don't have, that, I, that I'm not, I'm not, I wasn't a part of that. But there's something about everyone coming together, even listening, how's that scene going tonight when you're not, uh, when you're not out there, and sharing each other's terrific moments with each other as they've come off stage. That sounds like it really went well, sort of passing the baton, and everyone coming together every night to, make the, to tell the whole story together creates a great feeling of ensemble for me and a feeling of family. No question for me that, that, it's a f that there's a familial hook in, in, my, in, in my love, my need for the theater. Walter Bobby directed the uh, 20th Century Revival, and he's such a, a wonderful director. And so much to me, it is that, yes, and also attitude of that director, of that leader, mm -hmm. who wants to, you know, there we've all worked with a lot of jerks, and we've all worked with a lot of fabulous people. And when that director comes in, Walter came in to the first day with this utter enthusiasm and thrill for the fact that we were going to do 20th Century. He thought it was hysterical. He thought it was fun. Yeah. He told us all. We all gathered around, and he just, you know, <laughs> stroked our egos. No, he told us all how thrilled he was, and that energy, not only that, and then he brought in William Ivy Long, the costume designer, John Lee Beatty, the production designer. And all of a sudden, we were being, we were shown models of the set. We were shown costumes from the 30s. This, this like show and tell of these group of artists who were going to work on this show. The lighting designers came in. Everybody came into this first day, and it was like, I had never participated in that because mm -hmm. in proof it was already up and going. Mm -hmm. And he, I was like, 
wow, this is stunning. This is what people talk about in the theater. This is being a part of something that is so fresh and so awesome, and every single person in this room is so talented, and we're all going to do something together. And now we're all going to play. We're all putting on a play. And it was just, I mean, that... So, Tim, that attitude of, of that leader is so important to me. And that just kind of, that just got in all of us, and we were all bubbling, and every day we came to work, we were just, we were thrilled. Although I have heard that this is, it is a kind of rare opportunity. Everybody says, oh, no, this, Anne, don't, don't, don't think that this is the way that it always is. It's not always this way. We have a great group of people, but from what I'm hearing, it is that way. People do come together in that yeah. family and try to make it happen yeah. every night, you know, eight shows a week. It's crazy. I agree. That early, those early days are so important. What is the vibe? They're so yeah. important. And, and when, they, when the designers bring in... Their ideas to you, where the world you're going to inhabit, and what you're going to wear, and that it's a it's a great it's a great gift. It's a great feeling of that it's still <laughs> that anything is possible. It is and, uh, awesome, John Levy. I'm sorry, we are, we are on a train. This is the 20th century. The train, the train moves. <laughs> We're in the first day of her, and he's saying, this is going to go like this, and this is going to go like this, and then the set is going to split open. I'm like, what? What? <laughs> On stage? What? I, don't, I mean, it's just mind-blowing. And that's so fun. And then you watch all of these artists build every single day. The layers come, not only with character, but then the set gets built. You know, the lighting comes on. It, it just... It, I'm sorry. I, mean, I, mean, I mean, you're like, oh, I really love the theater. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. Felicia Jefferson, the same experiences, really, with a with a cast coming together. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, absolutely. I um, I just I just am loving hearing what you say, Anne, about that um, the the initial presentation. The thing I just I was just thinking about it was what I love so much about the theater is this. This sounds cynical, but it's not. The collective lying yeah. that goes on. The absolutely uh, bald-faced artifice of it. Um, right. You know, where it's not sleight of hand. It's just out and out lying. Right. You know, in what we do with space and time on stage. And, um, and that is its beauty. Because it's all these people working very hard with open, full hearts to lie. <laughs> and, and the audience enters into that glorious lie. And we don't make any bones about it. It is artifice. This is fake. But we are entering into it, and, and, th and through achieving a wonderful lie, it becomes the truth, you know. It becomes... Mm. Well, and what's so funny is we beautiful. all run around, of course, going, am I being truthful in this moment? <laughs> <laughs> am I being honest? Yes. 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 I don't know if I'm being truthful right. in this yes. moment. Yes, honesty, honesty. Yes. Yes. But it's an I honest lie. Wait, 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 what's going on here? Yes, mm. getting to that time where, you're, where you really drop the drama. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you're just in it. In it. Believing that lie. It's called yes. pathological lies. I don't think of it as no. a lie. I don't think of any, I've never thought of anything. Well, there was one time, and I had the playwright, I said, honey, you got to fix this. This is a lie. Because, right, I think of theater as truth. We have this saying. Theater is life. Film is art. And television is furniture. <laughs> yeah, theater is life. Theater is life, and it's a it's a representation of life. And if there is no truth in it, if it if if I had to, if I approached the work that I do as artifice, I couldn't get through it, because I'm always mm. looking for the truth, and I'm always looking for the truth that's not on the page.
It's what's not on the page that's exciting to me. Sure. Mm -hmm. and, and that's not something that I make my mind up about. That's something that will occur to me when I'm washing a cup mm. or frying an egg or walking the dog, looking at the change in the seasons. Ah, oh, oh, that's what that is. Oh, that's why she says that. Oh, that's how she's feeling then. Oh, oh, that's what that memory is. It's all of the things that are never on the page. Hmm. Yet it's interesting because there are comments about, you, you made the comment about, you know, talking to the playwright and saying, you got to fix that. Because it wasn't the truth. And I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> well, it raises the question, as performers, um, certainly in new works or, or in, in classical works where you're working with a director and shaping it, how, how much do you feel you have the right, the responsibility to, to make it work for you, and how much do you have to subsume to a director's vision? Uh, what's, what's the balance there? Uh, I think without that first day that, we, that I was just talking about, you don't know. You can't plan for that. The first day sets the tone for how people will be communicating with each other mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for the rest of the process. And if the tone is not set in a, first of all, enthusiastic, loving, confident environment, you know, the worst thing you can do to an actor is rob them of their confidence. Um, and that first day is a lot about instilling confidence in everyone in the room. Mm -hmm. And so if that isn't done, you're at a bit of a loss, particularly with a new play uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, a, and a living playwright uh, who's there in the room with you. You're at a bit of a loss because you don't know what the parameters are for what you can discuss. Because the world that you're there to explore has not been articulated. Um, and so it's a little bit like swatting flies, do you know, you're not, it, it's a little bit hard, you know, you sort of want to go, okay, well, I want to play it this way, but then, do you know, things just get all muddly and they get very confusing. And at least for me anyway, because I tend to prefer to be extremely specific and uh, know exactly what I'm going to be doing because I feel preparation uh, gives you room to uh, be spontaneous. Um, uh, but anyway, so it's very hard to do that if you haven't established the trust from very early on. Without that trust, I, I think it's hard to really feel comfortable in your skin asking questions or, you know, uh, saying, you know, what, what is this meant to be doing or what am I meant to be doing with this or I, I, I don't understand. I mean, do you know what I'm saying? It's very hard without that. To clarify what I was referring to in this particular uh, situation. This was a play written by um, a new playwright um, and um, everyone came together with an, with an idea of what we thought the play was. It was very interesting because all the cast members had the same idea hmm. and we hadn't discussed it with each other. But the playwright had a completely different <laughs> idea. <laughs> and the director the director was trying to be friends with everybody. Mm. And so the director really, after we'd been in it for two weeks rehearsing, one day we were sitting around the way actors do on the five minute break and we got to talk and said, do you really, do you think, what does that mean? 
do you believe? And we didn't believe it. None of the actors mm. did. We approached the director and we were told, well, why didn't you say something? We looked at the director. Well, honey, you're the director. <laughs> uh, you, you, and it turned out the director didn't believe it, but the director was being friends. Mm. So we had to do something. See, normally that's not my tact. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, you're yeah. right. That confidence. And that comes, I right. really do believe it comes from, from uh, I don't care how confident and wonderful and talented everyone in the room is, without a director who really uh, gives you, makes you confident in them. Yes. Uh, whether they're completely off base or not, you know, I don't know. If they're off base, if they sell it well enough to me, <laughs> I'll buy it. Do you know, that's what we're all there to do anyway. Right. So, and no actor, I don't think, uh, wants to belittle or insult a playwright by assuming that they can tell them what their play is about. And no, no director or actor should expect a playwright to be their own dramaturg. That's incredibly unfair. A uh, playwright is there to, you know put the words on the page. It's the director's job to find the ways to articulate that theatrically. Do you know? It's not a novel. It's a play, you know. Exactly. It's so strange, though, that we've managed very well in the theater without directors for thousands of yes. years. <laughs> yes. Um, I wonder, you know, why this emergence? Um, because I think the director is more important now than ever before. Because it's, it's so crazy what we're asked to do sometimes. You, mm -hmm. you show up out of town at a regional theater to do Long Day's Journey Tonight and say, oh, you're my mom and yeah. you're my father <laughs> and you're my brother. Okay, go. We have three and a half weeks to do right. this. So you need that sort of leadership, as um, Martha says. But I just, I guess before that, what was it? Actor, manager, it was or company? Actor, manager, company. 19th company century, manager. pretty yes. much. Before that, I think it was company. The worst company. actor in the group would sit out in the house and tell him <laughs> what yeah. looked bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I think it's company yeah. Yeah. Well, But yeah. certainly you had that period of the actor-manager where it was one grand actor mm. and everybody mm. just had to get out of their way and they brought their company around to showcase themselves. When I was in rehearsal for Stendhal Syndrome, and I, I trust I can say it, it, it was said about conductors. It was a joke, in, an orchestra joke about conductors is why is it a and I would imagine one could extrapolate to director. No offense to any of our wonderful colleagues that we've worked with and love, but why is a director like a condom? You know, it's like, well, safer with, more fun without. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think we've had, I think we've had a lot of, of, of centuries to work together as companies of mm -hmm. actors. Mm -hmm. And I think actors essentially at some, at some level, if there's proper respect in how we talk to each other, know how to communicate as a company and can actually put a show on. Things are so sophisticated now, technically, and, and so much needs to be pulled together. Mm -hmm. as, far as, as far as an answer to your question about when do you, when do you, you know, take issue with a, with a director at a particular moment, my perspective, having been raised by ballet dancers and having watched my whole childhood, having watched dancers with choreographers, is uh, I always try it because you, mm -hmm. I watched people when I would watch my, my folks working with, with, with Balanchine or Jerry Robbins, all it was like, you, have to, you don't know if it works unless you try it. Mm. So I, I've been very lucky, and I like to try it all. If they say, try it this way, or that's mm. not right, do it this way, I, don't, I, I try not to have a, too much of a proprietary feeling about my choices. Um, and if, if a director has an idea about how to do something that might be very different, 
uh, he's going to, I trust that if I do it to the best of my ability and it doesn't work, he's going to see that or she's going to see that and go, don't do that. Or it's still a good idea, but you, you can't do it. Um, <laughs> but I like to try first and then judge it later. The, being a, in 1998, I had the extreme privilege and pleasure of joining the Steppenwolf Theatre Company, and which of course has a long and illustrious history of uh, having actors who went to school together and were friends for many years and uh, just simply did what they wanted to do. And they didn't have an artistic director for a lot of the, you know, those beginning years. <coughs> they directed themselves and took turns directing each other, and they did quite extraordinary work and created an ensemble that's still together after, you know, yeah. 30 years, mm -hmm. or nearly 30 years. So that's pretty impressive. That's quite an accomplishment, and it says that it, it can be done, and it is often done. It's just a little more rare in our world right now. I'm always looking for an authority figure, though. I don't know about any of you. I, I feel co some comfort, as long as it's somebody that, that I trust. and I develop almost instantly that, that filial relationship. Uh, to a director when I feel like a director is good. Someone like, someone that, uh, I mean, it's part of the, for me, it's part of my acting, my pathology as a person, as an actor, is that I'm, 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 I'm drawn to wanting to please. And yeah. if there's somebody at the center of a piece who's wa who loves you and who loves what you're doing and who trusts you and who brings you all together, then it, it gives, then there's a pole star. There's someone you can, you can look to for guidance and ask and, and try to... Uh, and, Someone and always to pops up to take that role. Well, <laughs> somebody will, and it's best if it's a good director. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're absolutely yeah. right. Because we're going to replace that with whoever's out there. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I like to do it for myself, too, but I'm sure all, it's almost more fun when they're having a good time yeah. also, you know. Well, it's more fun when they're there to have the experience, not just watch us have one. Right, exactly. I don't know if I look so much for an authority figure, but what I, oh, I mean, s coming into, for me, I was getting ready to do a screwball comedy. I needed someone who could teach me. Well, I needed somebody mm -hmm. who was, I, I needed to know that he was funny and that he had done a show, I mean, Walter Bobby yeah. won the Tony for Chicago. I knew that I was coming in. I had confidence in him that I couldn't do, oh, I did not know. I wasn't going to stand up and direct a screwball comedy and know what I was doing. Yeah. And I really appreciated that I, Walter knew what he was doing. And on our second day, we got up and he had the whole set built with just sticks, basically, and doors. He had us moving in and out of those doors, slamming doors, this, that, because the whole thing is like music in a, in a comedy. And I, of course, was sitting there going, great, I can slam the door. Yes, I'll do that on the line. Where's my character? When do we start working on character? When are we going to start talking about why she is this way? She's so insane. What is she doing? And it didn't happen, and I'm, we're walking indoors and slamming doors, and two weeks are going by, and I'm like, great, we know our lines now. And I watched this man sit back and tell us when the door, bam, 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 bam. And two weeks later, then we started layering in, and I thought, he waited all this time to talk to the actors about character until our body language was so secondary to slam the door. The music was there, and then he started talking about character. And I thought, what? restraint. It helped me understand that each director has a process, how they approach it, and what, and I'm going back to the question a little bit earlier, when do you start saying this, that, and the other? Part of my experience with Walter was understanding that unlike Dan Sullivan, who you start talking about character in the first week with, or in the first moment, everybody has a different process, and each director approaches the kind of play they're doing in a different way. So I thought, okay, next time I, I, I'm just going to trust 
that the person that I'm working with understands. And if I can have the same kind of restraint that he had with me, not saying, oh, why don't you try this here and that here, when he was still trying to get me in the door at the right time in the funny moment, that he said, and I, uh, I, I just thought it was so incredible, I said, Walter, your restraint is incredible. He said, you know what it is? I'm just finding the vein for each one of you. That's what I feel like I'm doing. And if it taps in and you get tapped in in the music of all of this, then you're taking your ride. And you're with your character and with your company of actors. And I've just created the space for you to do that. And I, I mean, I've never heard of anybody talk about it that way. And that, again, is to me the pleasure of the theater. On a movie set, you have one minute to figure out mm, character and yep. you better get it and take two and see you later. So it's <laughs> such, a, uh, such an amazing thing to have time to even allow somebody, I mean part of what we do when we walk into a room is get to be with other artists and watch their process yeah. and understanding how they get there and understanding and hopefully trusting that a director is looking at all of these artists and he's got to figure out how to make them all work together and sing. Mm. And it's a, I mean, it's just, I, I was astounded by, by Walter and his restraint. His, his I think your point is so well taken. <laughs> if a director gives, the, because there's, a, there's the rehearsal process, and then the director goes away, and then it belongs to the company. Mm -hmm. And if it's been set well, and, and if a structure has been and an intention, as you say, mm -hmm. and a point of view, and, and we all have a strong house to live in, then, 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 they, then they can go, the designers go away, the director goes away, and then, and then it always grows and changes incrementally. <laughs> Yeah. Sure. God knows <laughs> incrementally, yeah. but uh, but then it's it's it stays firm, and uh, I think that structure is very important. I think that kind of approach is really interesting. Really valuable. So interesting, and I am I imagine every director does it differently. It's just so and differently for each play that they do. Right. Exactly. I'm curious. We've been talking a lot about directors, and I'm curious about how you as actors look at other actors, not people necessarily that you're working with in a show because that's very close, but when you go to the theater, what is the experience like for you? What do you look for in performances? How do you respond? Do, do you analyze people? Do you, do you watch it and just go as entertainment? Can you do that at this point? What do, what do you look for and what do you see in other people's performances? I'm just going to jump in because I got, I had the pleasure of seeing Jefferson in his play. And um, <clears throat> for me anyway, it was really a very, uh, it was really tr sort of transcendent experience. You'll forgive me for being so gushing. Yes. <laughs> 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 and not least of which was because of what you were talking about earlier about artifice. <clears throat> I, I'm all for truth in the theater and I believe it that that it is true um, to lie. <clears throat> I believe what gives it its, for me anyway, it's not interesting enough just to see people being honest on stage. That I can see on Dr. Phil or something. Um, do you know what I mean? I want to see the art in the way they're being honest and the choices they make in the way they move their body. How someone is telling a story with the way they use their voice, or the way they use their arms, or the way they address the audience. Um, these are artificial things that we put on to a character, to a performance, for effect. And we should have those, because that's what gives, that's what draws people in, is that sort of oddity of that, and the skill 
it is a skill. Otherwise, you know, sure anybody can do it. But in watching your work specifically, uh, I just felt like I was watching someone exercise um, their art, exercise their skill uh, in the most generous, specific, simple way. And yes, it was clear to me that I was being lied to because here is a man playing quite a few people. Um, do you know, uh, there's an articulation in the play where, uh, in I Am My Own Wife, there is a box uh, in which, uh, which uh, there's a photograph box and then there's another box within that photograph box. And do you mind if I'm talking about this? Okay. And well, I mean, cause some actors don't like some actors don't like it because you know they don't they don't like to hear you emphasize a certain thing in their play. They don't want to have to think about that like that. But I'm, I'm just describing it because it speaks to your question, and I found it so moving and it'll never leave my mind. And inside this box, which is pulled out very uh, very gently and very specifically, uh, the story is being told. Objects are being described. A home that someone lives in is being talked about. And a person is being revealed in the form of these objects. And the box is opened, and these objects in miniature are removed one by one from the box to sort of illustrate, you know, one, this is my very pedestrian way of describing <laughs> this, <so> forgive me. <laughs> but, but to me, that was the perfect articulation of what the theater is. Artifice, miniaturizing, present, presentation, connection to the object, uh, a language of the object, a physical language, all of these things that sort of come together um, theatrically. And I'm not just looking at someone being honest and saying, here's my chair, that's the one I sit in, here's my phonograph, that's the one I listen to. It's, here is my chair. Do you know, there's something so deeply moving about it to me, and I'm not sure I'm able to describe it very well. I don't think I'm doing a very good job. But I, I must say, that's what I look for when I go to the theater. I go for a sense of, that I am, that, that my mind is being respected, number one. That my intelligence is respected. And that I'm being drawn into a world that I am having the experience, not just watching someone feel something. That's not terribly interesting to me. I want to feel it. That's why I'm there. And that's where, why artifice to me is so important and why it, that wall is so important. Do you know what I mean? I'm not interested in hyper-realism and I think that's why that moment in your play, as, along with so many others, was just so affecting to me. I've gone on far too long. <laughs> Jefferson, what are you, having just had somebody talk about your performance, what are, is there, can you, can you speak to a moment that you've watched in theater that, that has moved you? Yes, I mean, there are so many. Um, I, I agree, it's a, it's, a, it's a strange medium in that you, I mean, again, talking about the artifice, but there is a, a presentation that happens, and, and a, this weird space in between performance and audience, which must be filled by both. 
I love the theater because of the demands it makes on an audience to lean forward, to suspend uh, disbelief, and to enter into something. And uh, that, that is what is so uh, truly thrilling for me, this collective agreement that happens. I suppose it's kind of like, I mean, it's like church mm -hmm. in the best possible sense of the word of people sort of communally coming there to sit together, to kneel together, to stand mm -hmm. up together. And, um, and, and that's why I, I, I love this medium. But that's what I look for. I look for communion. This, and to believe that this is so. Yes, right. I love that church analogy. My mother used to say to me, for a while she was trying to find a good church. <laughs> and she was having a hard time. We're Episcopal, and so we're sort of like diet Catholics. <laughs> and it's like Catholic without the guilt. <laughs> and um, she was trying to find a good church, and she was in a new city, living in a new place. She kept saying to me, you know, I'm having the hardest time finding a good church because everywhere I go, they're just so down to earth, you know. The, the pastor wears white patent leather shoes and someone gets up and plays guitar and sings a Judy Collins song. And it's all so, you know, down to earth. It's all so, let's bring God down to earth. And I don't want to, I want to be brought up to God. I don't want to bring God down to me. That's why I go to church. It's the God show. And I want to get lifted up. And I do believe that's, I feel the very same way about the theater. I think that's what the theater is for. Not to bring, n not to bring, you know, bring it to the people. But, you know, to lift everyone up in that way, I think is a perfect analogy. Felicia, do you think theater does that, can do that? I think theater can change people. I think theater can change people's lives. And if you look at those periods in human history where great changes in societies were made, you'll see that art was at the center of it, always at the center of it. Um, I don't think of high and low and up and down. I think of omnipresence. That's how I think. I think that there's only one, and that the one assumes the form of many, but that the one is present in all things. So for me, it isn't a matter of up and down or high and low. It's a matter of really, really, really being, the essence of being. There is something so magical about that and it's the most difficult thing for actors to do is to be because we're all so accustomed to doing things sometimes i'm always learning sometimes um in a scene um when i'm not speaking and it can be a dramatic scene you know there's something inside me that says be still and take those words in. Let them into you. Let them affect you. Don't do anything. For me, that's the ultimate. And when I go to the theater, I want to be totally engaged. I want to be so engaged, I don't have to think about what I'm seeing. 
I'm in it. It's become one. The audience and the performance has become one. That is magical to me. And I love it. Whatever the style, you know, whatever the mode, whatever. Because I like all kinds of theater. I want to be totally engaged so that I'm not thinking about it. And you are very new to working in the professional theater. Um, and I'm wondering, even to, the, to, discuss, to what Felicia was saying about stillness, of course in film, when you're still, very often they cut away to someone else and they, they show that. Does theater give you the opportunity to sustain an emotion in a way that you don't always get the opportunity in film or television? I, I'm not sure I understand. In film, I'm still, and they often cut away. I'm just not sure what that means. Oh, I was just saying, because of the discipline that, because film, you know, if there's a conversation, you go back and forth between people, as you say, they get the moment, and the moment's gone. R right. Just about, I'm just curious about whether, uh, whether it feels fundamentally different as a performer. Oh, it, I mean, it definitely does. I, I, and part of why I love the different mediums is because I feel like you use a whole different set of tools. And, and mm -hmm. certainly on film, you're being told basically, you're being told the story that the director wants to tell you, you're going to look here, you're going to look there, you're going to look mm -hmm. there. And on stage, you do get to have the full experience, certainly. And I'm, and not only am I new to performing on stage, but I'm very new to watching theater and going to theater because in my life I've worked and I was on a soap opera and I played twins and I worked 17 hours a day. I never saw theater. I couldn't afford theater. Um, and, and I've just really started to go to theater. And I am very much in the, I am in awe of what's happening and I am taken into the world and I experience it in as, as full I, I, being an actor on stage, understand that I want an audience member to give over to whatever is happening on stage with all of us. So I try to give that, like, I am, I'm here to, I am here to watch and, and experience all, all of what's going on. And on, when I'm in a moment, it's very funny, because when I was doing Proof, I went to Dan Sullivan's show, Mornings at 7, because he had that on Broadway. And it was such an incredible show, and it was yeah. my second day of rehearsal. And I saw all of these incredible actors, and none of them moved. Mm. <laughs> they were on stage, they would come on stage, and they would stand, and I realized, and I, I, I said to my husband at halftime, I call it, it's not even halftime, it's intermission, <laughs> I think. <laughs> oh, halftime break. I said, I, I said, they're so still. I thought theater was all about movement. I thought that when you came into this medium that somehow I was going to have to figure out, and I've always been an actor who uses my body, and you, but you never see it because it's always uh, uh, here. And I, th I thought, I'm so wrong. It's about being still. It's about allowing the words to be the life that is on stage. And I am the carrier, and so are the other people on stage with me. And it was the most incredible thing. And I ran into rehearsal the next day and I said, Dan, who was a very silent man, Dan, I got it, I got it, I got it. I'm supposed to be still. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> 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 so I thought I was going to be flailing all over him. No, 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 that's not what's interesting. 
it's although I'm flailing all You're over the place. You're flailing now. Oh, Sandra, <laughs> I have to forget Dan Sullivan now. But, <laughs> uh, but I often, even though my character is ve very physical in 20th century, I said to myself, I always think about something else different when, before I walk on stage. It's like whatever happens to me before I go on stage, there's often a focus point that I have, and it's different each night. Mm -hmm. And last night, I said, lose yourself. Mm. Lose yourself. And the night before, I said, listen. Take in the words that everybody else is saying mm -hmm. and just listen. Mm -hmm. And so it's so funny because I think there is a, I mean, it's a cycle, you know, maybe next month I'll be going through the same things, but I, I try to add on the experience that I feel when I go to the theater and then I take it in and the listening and the understanding and the stillness and then the next night I'll say, oh, go wild, you know, whatever, do whatever you mm -hmm. want. But what's so amazing about it is that it changes every night. Yeah. And each, and then when you're in that experience of whatever that is and every other actor is doing their own thing too, that whatever makes them be able to get out on stage, then you're in the energy of the exchange and that's when the audience, and no kidding, you can feel that's when that space is filled. Because everybody said yes to that experience. And I go to the theater to say yes to the experience. And that's why I'm a performer, too. I'm with you. I'm a, I, 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 I love to go. I love to watch actors. And I, love to, I'm, oh, I, I, go, I go to have a great time. And I go to admire. And even when I see an actor doing something that I might have a problem with on stage, I, one of the first things that I've come to realize about watching it is that what I'm seeing is a, is a trouble I've gotten myself into over and over again. I go, oh, I know where yeah. you're at. I know yeah. where. Because yeah. I, I, I don't think I've ever seen a moment, an acting moment on, by a, t a talented actor on stage that I quarreled with or thought they were in trouble with that, I, that was not a part of something that I had done at m many, many times. The thing about stunt, I'm a hyperkinetic, totally hyperkinetic actor, but I, but, so I admire stillness the way you do. Um, I think one of the beauties of, of stillness on stage is that it illuminates the space around the actor. And so much of the, what's terrific about, about being a, a human being in a stage space is that you bring the space around you to life. Not, not just your own performance mm -hmm. here, mm -hmm. but you, 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 can, you, can, you can make real the whole space around you. I learned that about line and dancing. It's not that mm -hmm. a dancer has a pretty line. It's just that if they have a beautiful line, what happens is that their body can, the, the line that their body draws continues on into space mm -hmm. ahead of them and behind them. And but I love that stillness, too. I have to let that be the final words. Uh, these seminars, the American Theatre Wing seminars, are brought to you from the Graduate Center at the City University of New York, part of the American Theatre Wing's ongoing mission of celebrating excellence and education in the theatre. I hope you'll join me in thanking these extraordinary panelists and go see a show tonight. <laughs>